0: Mel Madison is a writer and financial services veteran. Leveraging over 20 years' experience in the realm of high finance, he brings a real-world authenticity to his fictional narratives. Having served as the CEO of three separate uh, FINRA and SEC-regulated broker-dealers, Mel combines insider knowledge with a critical eye toward the economic forces that shape all our lives – With a knack for deconstructing jargon and making the complex understandable, Mel sheds light on the sometimes dark and confusing corners of finance. He holds an MBA from Duke University and studied creative writing at Loyola University, Chicago. He is the author of Quaz, a financial thriller. Mel Madison, welcome to Coast to Coast AM. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks, Richard.
0: Uh, let's um, let's get into a discussion about – well, there's a number of topics, whether we're talking about uh, the IMF, the World Bank, central banks, that kind of come under this umbrella term, uh, the deep economic state. What do we mean by the deep economic state?
1: Hello. Um, well, the deep economic state is a term that, for me, really encompasses uh, intergovernmental organizations such as the IMF the World Bank, as well as national-based organizations. uh, Specifically, uh, we're talking about central banks here in the United States. That's the Federal Reserve or the Bank of Canada or the European Central Bank, Bank of Japan. Um, And so these are all kind of either quasi-governmental agencies, internationally-based, or uh, national-based organizations like central banks.
0: Okay, so we should – kind of get a, um, a crash course or a primer in what central banks uh, are and how they got
1: started. Sure. So I think the main thing about central banks to understand is really what purpose do they serve in reality and kind of the difference between that purpose and the way they are generally presented to the public, because there's a big, a big difference, a big disconnect between The role that central banks have historically played, and I'm going back all the way to 1694, which was the foundation of the Bank of England. And the Bank of England is critical because it's the central bank that other central banks, including uh, what was the first central bank of the United States, the second central bank, and then our third central bank, the Federal Reserve is, as well as other central banks around the world. Uh, in, in the late 1600s, the, the then king of England, William III, uh, was essentially broke. He had been fighting wars, and he had been taxing his people uh, to no end. And he had actually – there had been some uh, sovereign defaults. So, so literally the king of England had not paid back some of his debts. And he wanted to create a fleet to continue a war against France. He had no money. He couldn't tax, the people were overtaxed, and he couldn't borrow. His credit was no good. And the solution was create a central bank. And that is where essentially the fraudulent basis of the modern monetary system began. And what happened, and I'll get into a little bit of detail how that mechanism works without trying to get too much jargon involved, is a way for essentially debt to become money. And that—that's the world that we live in today, where right. Fiat, that's
0: high. what we call fiat currency, right? The the, the king, basically it, on a on a paper note, says uh, it's like an IOU, isn't it?
1: Exactly, and and really, uh, the, the the total fiat currency realm that we live in today was—you can trace it back to then and. It did begin through, again, you know, a jargony term, but uh, finance people love to use jargony terms to hide exactly what is going on. You know, they call fractional reserve banking. But essentially what the king was able to do was to siphon money from the population. And so what happened was he was able to take money um, from the people through the Bank of England, use the gold, the real money, to finance his wars, and then granted the permission to the Bank of England to loan out money against or, – or to print money, print notes, against against the gold that had been lent to the king. And so the population of England uh, was forced to live with paper money, which, of course, led to inflation, and the king was able to finance all of his debts and do the war. And there is not much difference between what was happening – 300 and 30-some years ago in England with the government using a central bank in order to finance its goals and what's happening today in modern developed economies all around the world.
0: All right. So that model um, was brought to America. You mentioned uh, the United States has had sort of three central banks. Um, They were granted – well, who granted the first – the charter, let's say – for the first
1: bank of the United States, sure. so there was a currency crisis in the very beginning of the formation of the United States because the the colonies, um, the newly independent colonies that became the United States, did not have money to finance the revolution. So they they started printing fiat money uh, called the Continental. There's a saying; it's not used much anymore, but it's worthless as worthless as a Continental, and and that has to do with the Continental currency that was created and so the finances after independence of the united states were in disarray there was massive inflation like hyperinflation like two three hundred percent a year continentals were were not worth anything and so they the the finance um cabals the bankers um and especially their champion uh, alexander hamilton wanted to create a, a central bank thomas jefferson and the jeffersonians were extremely against this uh, I have a, a quote in the beginning of my book from Jefferson uh, "Banking establishments are more dangerous or, than than standing armies mm-hmm. and essentially what happened was a 20-year charter was granted uh, Hamilton won out and got the charter but by the end of that 20 years the American people who really were fundamentally against the bank um, Congress did not renew the charter and so it only lasted for 20 years from 1791 to 1811.
0: Isn't it interesting though, um, Mel, that, that Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton is celebrated on Broadway, you know, with musicals and he's held up as this, you know, hero. Uh, And yet you're saying it it was Hamilton who really pushed for the first bank of the United States, this first central bank. Um,
1: Yeah. But let me, can you maybe, I mean, Hamilton, go ahead.
0: Yeah. Well, I was just going to say how, how, um, are these central banks? How are they inflationary?
1: Mm-hmm, sure. I just really, really quickly on Hamilton because he was involved in so much. Uh, the term they used back then was the stock jobbers, and he he was really a master at using economics for control. And he was the one who came up with also the plan for the United States federal government to assume the state debt of each of the states that that the states had run up during the, uh, the revolution and and you I, I'm in faith that sounds great but but what it was was it, it was this beginning of economic consolidation of power and so this was really the blueprint that Hamilton did and and just like you know there are insider trading scandals today in the American Congress there is insider trading going on with shares of this first central bank in the United States so you literally had politicians uh, with insider knowledge creating uh, share classes and banks and people on the inside, you know, investing, making money. And then of course, when the shares, you know, fall out and, and and go down, you know, the average person uh, is the one who loses out Now to the second point, which is the, how is it inflationary? And the, the real way that, that all either fiat based money or fractional reserve money, which is essentially, Uh, you know, a a lesser version of fiat money. There's a little bit of money backing it, but it's normally only something like 10%. So a bank takes in $100 and they enter on their balance sheet that they have $100, but then they turn around and they loan out $90. And of course, if somebody comes and wants their $100, it's not in the bank. And so what that process is doing is is that is creating money. So, The foundation of all money, as I said earlier, is debt. And so this debt, in in a sense, uh, the bank has a debt when it takes your money. The bank owes you that money and then creates money from that debt that did not exist before. And so what you're doing is you're creating money. And inflation is very simple. It's, It's when money supply goes up, but the amount of goods and services that are out there to be bought do not go up. So if there's X amount of goods and services and there's X amount of money and all of a sudden you create X plus uh, 0.9 amount of money, then that extra money in order to buy those goods and services is going to go up. And that is exactly what we saw in recent years where the government printed tons of money through the central bank, through the Federal Reserve or the Bank of Canada or their ECB. All this money starts sloshing around in the economy But yet there was no commiserate rise in goods and services. And so with all this money, the same amount of goods and services, the result is inflation.
0: Okay, so the first Bank of the United States, uh, the first charter brought in by Hamilton. um, At some point, I guess, what, the charter is revoked? They don't want a, a, a central bank? Was that Jefferson's doing, revoking the charter?
1: Uh, it was uh, built in. There was a sunset provision on it. It was a 20-year ah, charter, okay. and it was not renewed.
0: Got it. Okay. But then
1: the Second Bank
0: of the United States came in. Uh, who was responsible for that? Yes.
1: Yeah, so, so, so that came in in 1816, and similarly there were financial parties uh, who saw an advantage. And, and this is often not mentioned, but you're wondering, like, who are these financial parties? So banks have historically been the owners of central banks. So when you look at our Federal Reserve even today, people will say, well, the Federal Reserve is owned by the government. Well, it's not. Um, And this is a short quote that comes literally from the Federal Reserve's website. While the Board of Governors is an independent government agency, the Federal Reserve banks are set up like private corporations. Member banks hold stock in the Federal Reserve banks and earn dividends. So we have a Federal Reserve system right now with 12 regional central banks. And just like going back to the first, the second central bank of the United States, the members, the the people who own these central banks are the commercial banks. And so the commercial banks are really pushing for this. And what happened with the second central bank, once again, people realized this is just a a way to debase our money uh, it's a way to lose purchasing power and it didn't get renewed after 20 years and in fact Andrew Jackson who was uh, president with, as this charter was expiring was very much against central banks and he the government had some debt with the central bank and Andrew Jackson was the only president to ever go in pay off that debt and make the United States debt-free and then uh, when the central bank expired the United States had no central bank all the way from 1836 until the formation of the Federal Reserve System in 1913.
0: And what was the uh, in that I don't know eighty eighty year period between 1836 and 1913? What was the, uh, the the economy in the United States like? Were there were there boom and bust periods? Because that's as we'll get into that's the other rationale for the uh, the creation of the Federal Reserve was to prevent boom-and-bust cycles.
1: Yes, there were boom-and-bust cycles, and there also was debt-based money. And so this is the other thing. People will say, well, there were boom-and-bust cycles before the Federal Reserve, so you can't really blame the Federal Reserve for things. Most of these boom-and-bust cycles were started because during this interim period, there was a system of granting national bank charters and essentially allowing individual banks to loan out money, create fractional reserve money, and to uh, flood the system with notes. And so what, what you see time and time again, whether you're talking about ancient Rome, ancient Greece, um, up to modern day, is that there's this, this undeniable need by governments and financiers to figure out ways to create money um, that inevitably lead to inflation and the destruction of purchasing power for the normal person. And so there was a financial turmoil during these periods. There was a panic in 1907, and there was a, a call that we can solve this and end panics and end crashes by creating another central bank, and that, that's how we got the, the federal resources.
0: Right, which was kind of snuck in over Christmas recess back in 1913. Uh, People will be familiar with G. Edward Griffin's book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Um, Do do you you want to talk a little bit about what happened on Jekyll Island, that meeting, and what they were up to?
1: Uh, Sure. I mean, the the, the Jekyll Island meeting, which a lot of people know about, The Creature from Jekyll Island, the famous book, um, which really kind of pulls back the curtain on the inside story that you know you have to ask yourself why why are these people meeting in secret in jekyll island why are they swearing um servants to secrecy why are they arriving in the middle of the night because they knew that if it came out and and these people are senators uh, powerful senators powerful bankers people uh like jp morgan that basically uh they they met clandestinely They they knew at the time um, that they wanted a central bank, but the current president, it to my mind, who was current president at the time, uh, was not going to go. Woodrow,
0: well, that would have been Woodrow Wilson, I think.
1: Well, he, he was the man they put in to get it passed. So, oh, so this okay. plan was a little bit before 1913. It was in uh, the meeting in Jekyll Island was 1910 or 1911. There was an election in 1912. And, and Woodrow Wilson was, I believe, the then governor of New Jersey and 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 they essentially bankrolled his campaign with the understanding that he was going to, um, to push Congress to pass the Federal Reserve Act. And within nine months of Wilson taking office, the Federal Reserve Act was signed.
0: Mm. Um, and what changed under the Federal Reserve system?
1: So what what the Federal Reserve system did was it really... It, it codified, it nationalized this whole arrangement of enabling the government um, to increase its spending through debt. And I think you know a lot of people are familiar with charts that can show what was the purchasing power of a $1 dollar in 1913 and what is it now, and it's like 0.3% or something like that. And so it, it, it started this inevitable uh, decline where real money, sound money, Gold silver um, continues to more or less maintain its value, while the paper money uh, continues to to lose its purchasing power. And this has all types of um, benefits for for the rich and, and the powerful. Uh, you know, the this essentially necessitates spending. It necessitates consumerism. It necessitates investment. Because if you if you take your money and you take your wealth and you simply preserve it. And don't don't spend it,'t don't, don't insert it into the economy, and then it just becomes worthless. And so you have people uh, it, you know recently, not so much today because we're, we're in a brief period, I'm sure later we can talk about what's coming, but we're in a brief period where there's somewhat of an interest rate now. But we're coming off a period of 15 years of basically no interest rates. In fact, in a lot of Europe, there were negative interest rates on money. And they had the saying, "Tina, there is no alternative. You have to put your money in the stock market. You you can't invest in bonds. You have to invest. You have to spend." And so, the the Federal Reserve system just put into place essentially the the bankers' uh, delight, where they're getting money, they're able to create money, and they are forcing economic activity of which they are the primary beneficiary.
0: Mel, we'll take a quick time out. And we are back with Mel Madison, writer, financial services veteran, the author of Quas, a financial thriller. We're talking about the economic deep state and uh, central banks, the Federal Reserve, and uh, the Bank of International Settlements. Um, so getting back to the role of the Federal Reserve, uh, first of all, the uh, the Federal Reserve now is, is creating money, although that uh, – it's pretty clear in the Constitution – that responsibility lies solely with with Congress to mint the money. Uh, how were they able to get around
1: that? Yes, that, I think that's an interesting uh, clause in the Constitution. Um, and I think one important word that is very telling is it states uh, Congress has the power to coin money. And so r- really there is no intent for fiat currencies to come back. The as I mentioned earlier about the Continental and uh, the experience with fiat paper money, they use that word coin uh, specifically and not print or create money uh, because they did not want uh, exactly what we have today. So what the Federal Reserve is doing with printing this money, uh, I think is very interesting And in, in how they create it, is they use debt. So, so they use treasury debt to create money. The way they do that is the government issues Treasury debt, and the Federal Reserve buys it, and they buy it with money that they create on a computer. This money is just zeros and ones. It doesn't exist. Then they hold the debt on their balance sheet, and the United States pays interest on that debt. But at the end of the day, the Federal Reserve pays its profits uh, back to the government. So the government is able to print money, and it looks to the rest of the world like we're paying interest on our debt, like there are controls on our spending, but we're really not paying interest on our debt. And so a lot of people, they talk about like China or China could sell their debt. China does not own a lot of U.S. debt. China is not even the largest foreign holder of U.S. debt. Japan holds a lot more debt than China. China's total amount of treasury holdings of the U.S., are. U- U.S. debt, it's around $800 billion. That might sound like a lot, but the Federal Reserve holds well more than 10 times that amount, over $8 trillion. And so the bulk of U.S. debt is actually being held by the Federal Reserve. The United States is paying interest. It's a shell game. The United States is paying interest to the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve is turning around and paying it back to the United States Treasury. So what, what they've created here, and th- this really – was the transition that happened in, let's call it 1971, when the United States officially came off of the gold standard, is that there needed to be some sort of a a shell game, some sort of a a show for the world to act as if there's a constraint on, on U.S. spending and that things are going to be controlled. And there really is no monetary constraint. But what the result of it is and the way that everybody pays for it is with the hidden tax of inflation. And so that's really the, the way that the money is being created uh, with this veneer of a legitimate financial system.
0: Does that mean that the, the debt, which is now somewhere around $34 trillion, that it's an illusion? It's not real?
1: It, it is an illusion. It, 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 it's, it's a number – Somewhere on a screen, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and the Federal Reserve headquarters in Washington, D.C., and it's just a revolving door where the uh, Federal Reserve buys this debt, and it, it, it doesn't exist. What it does is it just does, as I talked about earlier, it increases the money supply, so it increases the amount of dollars floating around. It doesn't increase goods and services, and as the famous University of Chicago Economist Milton Friedman said, "Inflation is everywhere and everywhere or is everywhere and every time a monetary phenomenon. It's it's just the printing of money. It's a, a fool's gold, and it's why the inevitable path towards the value of the dollar is continually down, even if it goes up against other currencies, which are also paper fiat currencies like the euro or the yen. It might go up against those currencies." But it continues to go down against real money, uh, which is gold, which as recently as 1971, before the gold standard was gone, the official exchange rate was $35 per ounce of gold. And, of course, now it's uh, $2,000. Uh,
0: the other thing, of course, that the Federal um, Reserve does in the U.S. or the central banks and other countries, the, the Bank of Canada, they it, it sets interest. They set interest rates. Um, there's something called the uh, the Fed Funds rate. What is that?
1: Yeah, so so the Fed Funds rate is the rate that people hear about when Jerome Powell or another head of a central bank comes out and says, oh, "Here's what we're doing on on interest rates." And the Fed Funds rate is is really it's not a rate that is issued by the Federal Reserve. Really, it it's what they're telling commercial banks need to lend to each other. And so they're they're telling that one bank needs to lend to another bank at this amount. And the way they can manipulate that is they have an open market committee that I, they can actually go into the market. They can buy or sell uh, bonds or debt or or paper of these banks in order to get it to the to the point where they want it to be. I think um, one of the reasons I wanted to bring that up is that this. This focus on interest rate is really – it's a look over here at the left hand, not over here at the right hand. So they, they, they want people to focus on the interest rate, uh, uh, what's going on in, in that area, and there's less attention paid to the balance sheet. And, and balance sheet is, can be a, a scary financial word. It just means your assets and your liabilities. And the Fed balance sheet is what has been just expanding – astronomically since the great financial crisis, when it sat around $800 billion and went up to $9 trillion. And right now, that balance sheet is starting to go down just a little bit. But eventually, uh, given the amount of debt and spending that the United States needs, needs to do in the next 10 years, I don't see any way in which that balance sheet cannot start to rise again and that you know i don't want to get too ahead of the horse in front of the horse here but eventually this is going to require a massive money printing a massive uh, super qe super quantitative easing which could only have uh inflationary effects
0: well we had that um after the the crash in 2000 and s- or the economic collapse in 2007 2008 we had years and years of quantitative easing. So you're saying we're going back to that?
1: We are going back to that. And the quantitative easing that took place after that crash is actually just a warm-up for what then happened after COVID, uh, which was kind of the one-two punch that really led to this inflationary spike. And what we have coming down the road, especially in the United States, but it's similar situations with developed economies all around the world, is we have the uh, entitlement programs that have been set up, things like Social Security, uh, Medicare in the United States, that are literally, and these aren't my numbers, these are from the Congressional, uh, congressional Budget Office, that are heading for bankruptcy in uh, 2033, 2034. And so there's not going to be any money to, to pay the, the uh, vast amount of money that is owed not to mention the, the spending that that is getting approved by Congress uh, from a fiscal perspective and so this debt issuance or the amount of treasuries that are going to have to be produced in order to finance all of this it, it if people real real people like banks or people that have money had to buy all of this debt the interest rate would need to be something like 10 fifteen percent and that interest rate, if it was actually being paid to real people, is just too high to sustain. And so there's only two solutions. One, you end entitlements, you end government spending, or two, you print more money. And my bet is that they're going to print more money.
0: Uh, and that's going to cause massive inflation.
1: And that's going to cause massive inflation and destruction in purchasing power and uh, all kinds of problems for people who do not own financial assets. And that's the other thing that that really goes on here is the people that get hurt the most by this inflationary are not people that own stocks and bonds and real estate. Because if their money is there, you saw what happened during COVID. The home prices go up, their wealth goes up, they feel fine. But, you know, in the United States, our stock market, the S&P 500, uh, 10% of the population owns 90% of the shares on the S&P 500 the other 90% they're not participating they're living paycheck to paycheck their wages are going down their rents are going up and you're getting more and more wealth inequality and so the ruling class the elites the people who have financial assets and you know in full disclosure I, i'm one of those people so so in, in in a way it's not harming me as much but it is harming the vast majority of americans who don't have you know, real estate, financial assets. And part of why I wrote my book was part of why I love to talk about this topic is to educate people because this is really the way that when you look at your situation and you're saying, hey, I used to be able to afford my groceries, my rent, all of this, and still have some money left over, take the kids to a movie on the weekend, and now I can't even do that." that, that's how this is all happening, even though you might not be seeing your tax rate increase.
0: Is it all happening by design? Is this this being done on purpose? Are they hollowing out the middle class on purpose?
1: I I believe that they are, and I believe that it is part of a a larger plan uh, to remake the the global economy and the financial system. And part of that plan is going to be a, a central bank digital currency but what they need to do first is they need to get people into a situation where they're willing to accept an economic sea change, a massive, and they need a massive of people. They need to manufacture a crisis to put into place the changes that they want to put into place, and these can be things like universal basic income and other uh, policies that that are the ultimate goal.
0: So this the current financial. Uh, order um, that I guess was established uh, after the Second World War at Bretton Woods. So this is when the United States became sort of, you know, uh, the world hegemonic um, leader taking over from Great Britain. You had the decline of the British Empire after the Second World War. Britain was broke, so the U.S. now becomes the U.S. dollar becomes the reserve currency. Why would they want to jeopardize that? I mean, there was such tremendous growth after the Second World War, um, you know, an expansion and, and, and a creation of a, a huge middle class. Why would they, by design, want to do away with all of that?
1: I I think one thing that's interesting about reserve currency is most people, when you hear them talk about it, they talk about it as if if it's it's just a good thing for the U.S. They talk about it as if it helps out the average person, that we have this amazing reserve currency status in the United States. But there is a very, very dark side to being a reserve currency. And, again, it benefits the elite. It benefits those with money. People without money actually are worse off because in the United States because we are a reserve currency. What Explain. being a reserve currency does is it creates an artificial demand for your currency, there is an artificial demand for dollars that should not exist. That allows the government to spend money. It also allows the dollar to remain strong. You, you live in Canada, Richard. What's happened to the dollar versus the Canadian dollar?
0: Yeah, it's like monopoly money. It's 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 <laughs> about a dollar thirty six, I think, right now. The um, hey, Canadian hey. dollar, yeah.
1: Exactly. I believe, I believe it's, it's gone down something like 25% in the last few years, the, the, the loonie, the Canadian dollar against the U.S. dollar. So the United States dollar gets this, oh, we're a reserve currency. That's amazing. But what does that do? Our currency becomes so strong that it doesn't make sense to pay wages to Americans. So what do you do? You start paying wages to people who you don't have to pay in dollars because dollars are artificially high. And so what happened, this didn't happen overnight. But what happened because of the reserve currency status after World War II? It took time, but eventually the entire United States manufacturing system got hollowed out because our labor was too expensive. Our dollar was powerful; we could buy goods cheaper than other people. But our labor was also expensive, and so for people with assets, their their dollars, you know, remain you know great buying power. But for people without assets who had to work. Their labor became more expensive than labor in Vietnam or China or India, and their jobs went over there. So the reserve currency is just one more example of something that gets put in place, talked about as it's this, this amazing thing, and is actually uh, – I was going to say screwing over. I don't know if I can say that, but screwing over the middle class, helping the rich.
0: All right. We'll uh, come back, and we'll get into – the uh, central bank of all central banks, the Bank of International Settlements, Mel Madison, my guest, the author of uh, Quas, a financial thriller.